You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, nice to talk to you, too. This has been a kind of a jam-packed week for Driving Law. You know, you and I were talking about topics earlier today, and you said some things, and we're going to talk about them. And then I realized that we also have, like, a really interesting hand sanitizer study we need to talk about. Uh, There's so much. There's, yeah, there's two hand sanitizer studies. There's the one that, that you sent me, and then there's the new one. I don't know that I haven't read the new one. The one that I, that's, that's uh, conducted by Jan Semenov. I was going to say, by Jan Semenov. Maybe yeah. I'll not have you on the podcast and ask mm-hmm. Jan about it instead. Maybe, well, maybe you can do that next week. And maybe this week we can talk about some of the topics that I came up with. I mean, I put the work in and everything. Okay. All right. We'll give you credit. It has been a hectic week, though, and there's been lots of uh, interesting driving law stuff. Uh, But uh, the first one, I think, that is probably not what people expected on the driving law podcast um, relates to. It relates to um, injunctions and specifically the Teal Cedar uh, Ferry uh, Creek logging. Logging protest. Ferry Creek protests and the BC Supreme Court's refusal to continue the injunction that prohibits people essentially from protesting on those roads. Sure. This protest has gone on for a year, right? Uh, and there's been an, an, an injunction in place that was obtained by the logging company to keep protesters from getting in there. And it was issued by BC Supreme Court last year. Uh, and uh, just sort of like issued in the normal course of things that we have in BC protests at logging sites and you just go to court and get an injunction to keep people from from keeping you from logging. And then, of course, it came up, the year was up, and there was an actual hearing into it, which was interesting in itself, but it's also an interesting driving law case, and it really has not been, I think, properly represented in the public sphere. Yeah, I mean, mostly in the public sphere, they've been talking about, like, the fact that the injunctions are gone now. and uh, Well, the, the, really... the protesters are spinning it as like a glorious victory for, for <laughs> the cause. And, I mean, it's uh, the, the, the police getting slammed for police behavior um, was not, you know, was, was not the actual actions so much of the police, but, uh, and there was some of those, too. But um, in the end, it, you know, it it's had nothing to do with the substantive issues that the people were protesting about. And yeah. in the end, the court also said the behavior of the protesters has escalated to the extent that it is, there's no longer a gap. They can be charged with criminal offenses. So there's no gap in the law or gap in enforcement. They can now just be charged with criminal offenses for the way that they've been behaving. And, you know, this is interesting about, about protesting and how driving laws actually relate to your rights uh, or the limitations on your rights to protest. Um, one thing that we see people do a lot in, you know, in the Ferry Creek protests, in other logging-related protests, uh, in the Black Lives Matter protests, 
in um, indigenous sovereignty protests, like all of them, we see people blocking roadways. I mean, even more recently with anti-vaxxers, blocking roadways, blocking highways, blocking public access to roads. At which point it becomes a driving law issue. At which point it becomes a driving law issue. And the criminal code, I think a provision related to driving law that we've probably never talked about, there is a provision in the criminal code in the mischief section uh, that essentially indicates that a person commits mischief uh, if they block a highway. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, <laughs> there's so many different circumstances where it, it is uh, it poses a risk to the public. I don't know that that was the intention of the legislation, but that is in the criminal code. It's a criminal well, code offense. Um, you know, I think I think it could be the subject of a constitutional challenge if, say, one of these protesters were charged with blocking the highway as a result of their protest activity, whether that would be a constitutionally permissible limit on your right to protest. Yes, and I think by virtue of the freedom of, of expression guarantee in the Charter, uh, that you've got a charter argument there, no matter what, um, whether or not it would be successful. But I, like, I don't think the I don't think the criminal code section was intended to stop protests. I think it was for the purpose well, of of safety. But now, you know, the court is saying, look, you could maybe apply this there, at least try it out. It's not a the the gap in the legislation does not exist, but it also doesn't exist because they went beyond blocking roads, right? You know, yeah. They built towers, they cut trenches, they did all sorts of things. And it and it prevented access to roadways that everybody has a right to access to in 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 British Columbia. Yeah, well the court, you know, in in the um the Teal Cedar case does deal with this question of the criminal law and and the use of criminal law powers. And there is some suggestion even in the judgment that Maybe this wasn't what Parliament had in mind when they drafted the "Don't Block the Roads" section, but it appears to fall within the scope of it. It is there. It is there. Uh-huh. So, whether those comments maybe provide a foothold for a constitutional analysis, and anyone who's like a pro-protesting lawyer listening to this podcast, uh, you know, go go nuts. Use this argument. Um, I will not litigate this. I do not have the time, but it's definitely, I think, an interesting issue to watch. Now, Paul, I don't think you noticed this, but there was something else that I found fascinating about this judgment in, uh, and its relationship to driving law that maybe wouldn't be as apparent on its face. Go ahead. So the court talks about at paragraph, uh, where is it, 40... I wrote it down. Hold on. Uh, Paragraph 48, the court talks about whether or not the injunction is actually going to be granted. And of course, when you're looking at getting an injunction or a stay of a consequence, like say a stay of your driving prohibition in a judicial review of an immediate roadside prohibition case. For example. (laughs) For example, the court looks at three things. Uh, They look at whether there's a serious question to be tried. Uh, They look at whether or not uh, there would be irreparable harm suffered if the stay is not granted, and they look at the question of the balance of convenience. Now, in this case, the court looks at those three things and ultimately comes to the conclusion that there's no difficulty 
in establishing that there's a serious question because the protesters, if they're, you know, if they're charged, have the right to trial, whether or not they exercise it or it's likely that they will, um, they still have the right to a trial. So that alone makes it a serious question to be tried. Um, but secondly, actually, maybe I'll stop there because it, it, as I said this, it occurred to me that that's also useful for like people who are given ADPs. If they were doing a judicial review of the ADP and wanted an interim stay of the driving prohibition, the fact that there's a corresponding criminal proceeding with a trial and that the ADP disclosure, as you and I know, often has some bearing on decisions that are made at trial as far as what the officer said then versus what the officer says now and swearing earlier reports to the superintendent and so on. Uh, well, um, so that, you know, that potentially makes it automatically a serious question to be tried under this analysis. But what I found interesting about paragraph 48 was the irreparable harm because the logging company took the position that they would have uh, economic harm if they couldn't continue their logging activities, right? The fewer yeah, yeah, yeah. logs, right? Yeah. So you and I, in dealing with uh, interim stays of driving prohibitions for people who are seeking judicial review of their IRPs or their ADPs, have always had to deal with this question of economic harm, and it's been considered by the court in the IRP or ADP context as it not being sufficient to meet the irreparable harm test, if you're just going to lose some income, or you're going to have to pay for a driver, or you're, you know, you're going to be out some costs while you're serving the driving prohibition, the courts have been like, yeah, that's that's minor. It's only if you lost your employment entirely, or if you, you know, if if you you had some massive uh, amount of economic loss that would cause you to go bankrupt. That's sort of the line that the courts have been drawing. But the court here. Um, in the Teal Cedar case, actually says, no, that's not where the line is. Uh, where it says, those arguments are without merit. Irreparable harm is not a question of magnitude. I accept the submission that it will be difficult, if not impossible, to recover damages for the economic harm done by the continuing interference. Uh, I reject the argument that Teal Cedar is required to show that its status as a going concern is threatened in order to establish irreparable harm. And that without evidence of impending insolvency, any harm is not irreparable. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I thought that was fascinating because when it comes to big, bad logging companies, apparently if they lose a couple hundred bucks a day or I don't know how much a day, but, you know, whatever it works out to, their irreparable harm on a scale of lesser magnitude, particularly given their income, is given more credence than a driver's irreparable harm in not having their, their ability to work for several months or a parent's irreparable harm in not being able to take their kids to their activities or having to hire Ubers or taxis or drivers. Even if the person can afford to pay for it, it shouldn't be an issue. And I think this judgment might put an end to the notion that you would have to establish like the actual risk of bankruptcy or the risk of loss of employment and no ability to regain it in order to meet the irreparable harm test on judicial review. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Changes it up. Yeah. Or at least Changes gives us a up. new, gives us a new, <laughs> gives us a new argument. It I keep thinking, I keep thinking of the um, cases where 
uh, we've gone to court and the superintendent is not rendering a decision and a year goes by and the superintendent doesn't render a decision and you you've you know we've tried in the past to compel them and things like that uh, and uh, the court seems to have been fine with that and in this decision in the end um, you know a year has gone by and we see the judicial actor which is the RCMP uh, bringing the administration of justice into disrepute by their behavior and I keep thinking that this ongoing thing of suspending people's driver's licenses for three months while they make a decision after the end of the three months, that that is bringing the administration of justice into disrepute in a manner that is somewhat similar and using the court to do it once we've, you know, we've taken it to court. And I, I think there's an angle there. Um, okay. The other thing I was thinking about is, I mean, I, the, 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 ultimately in the end, the interesting thing about this decision is that the injunction is declined despite the fact that it's still a balance of convenience to uphold it and a couple of reasons for that um, but the main reason was the um, police being used as the arm of the court in a manner that brought the court into disrepute right and part of that was that the police set up gates to block people from using the roads they have a right to use including journalists including journalists now they set up gates they the police set up gates and barriers and that's interesting cuz you know we used to there used to be a, some an old case that said you basically you have a right to use the highways and a lot of people mm -hmm. use that to say you have a right to drive and you know i've always held that you have a right to have a driver's license and you have a right to drive so long as you abide by the law it's just that you're on a a short leash this has been my argument that led to people not being happy about my my position. A BC Supreme Court judge, if uh, within this last decade, said you don't have a right to drive, and then they changed the uh, criminal code specifically when Jody Wilson-Raybould was the justice minister to say you don't have a right to drive. But this is saying once again, reinforcing your right to use the roads yep. um, yeah, as a citizen. Well, they look at the judge looked at the um, sort of the definition of of industrial road and the Forest and Range Practices Act um, to determine who has the right to use a forest uh, a forest service road or an industrial road, and it actually says right there in section twenty two point two that a um, uh, a road that is a forest service road or constructed or maintained by the holder of a road permit or a woodlot license. Um, uh, may be used by any person other than a person referred to in Section 22.1. So anybody can go down those forest service roads. It doesn't belong to Seal Cedar, and you can't block the public generally from accessing it. Which is what made it look so bad <laughs> from yeah. the perspective of in the court. Fact, <laughs> who's the one committing the offense after all? Yeah, well, that was the point. That was the point. So, I mean, again, injunction was declined which is unusual because it's usually you know it favors the status quo and the status quo in this case is for the business to be able to continue and the injunction being in place now the other thing is the the um uh the fact that the litigation was likely never to happen um was uh, another thing that was taken into consideration when not upholding the uh 
the decision or the injunction. And that is something that I have been worried about in uh, the context of challenges to changes to legislation. Um, so we'll have to think about that one and maybe talk about it another day. Should we talk about this other decision that we have tried to talk about two times? Teasing for days and weeks and months. Yeah, I mean, it's not a friendly or happy decision or anything like that. Um, it's uh, actually, I think, quite a disturbing decision when I view it. And it it tells me, I'm just going to, before I discuss it, you can be the one to summarize it. I don't like to be the one summarizing these things, but um, it tells me that... Because you the, haven't read them? No, I read this thing. I sent it to you. tells me that the uh, 24-2 analysis is, um, is way too uh, wishy-washy now. And I've complained about this before. And I'll let you explain the decision. And there we go. Intro. Uh, okay. okay. So uh, this case is a case out of Grand Prairie, a place I will never go again. If you ever want to hire me for a case in Grand Prairie, don't. Um, <laughs> I do not like this place. Uh, the decision of Judge Sierra, um, a woman, uh, Callie Johnson, is charged with impaired driving. Basically, she's pulled over. Uh, nothing unusual uh, really occurred. Um, the vehicle leaves the parking lot of a casino, pulled over by the police. They make a mandatory screening device demand, um, and she provides a sample. Uh, it registers a fail reading, and as a result of that, she's arrested and taken back to the police station to provide breath samples. When she gets back to the police station, uh, she uh, blows once, um, and then uh, um, in between the two samples, there's a required waiting period under the criminal code. Um, in between the two samples, she says, can I go to the bathroom? And so the police take her to the cell block uh, in the basement of the detachment. And uh, then around the corner into the back, there are female prisoner cells. Um, she's taken to the washroom in the female cells area. And the officer in, in testimony couldn't recall uh, who escorted her to the washroom and who stood out besides the cell door. Um, but uh, somebody stands outside the cell door while she uses the washroom. And little did this poor woman know, but she was on camera, including on the toilet. And so the uh, video recording, there's a summary of it. Um, she's essentially paragraph 39 of the judgment, which is uh, Regina and Johnson, 2021 ABPC 213. Uh, she's seen entering the empty cell. She stands near the toilet and sink, um, and it's like a combined unit. Uh, she takes some toilet paper uh, and then pulls her pants down and seats herself on the toilet. Uh, the judge says it was like so quickly that no private part appeared visible, but her naked left leg and partial left buttocks are visible well seated and you can watch her wiping herself and pulling up her pants and flushing the toilet and leaving you see her butt you see the actions of what she's doing she's recorded the whole time so there you go there's yeah. your summary well there's another issue in there and that is um with respect to the um uh, uh significant concern i would say in this case of uh, mouth alcohol contaminating the approved screening device demand, or the uh, approved screening device sample, rather. So the person's leaving the casino. There's every reason to believe that mouth alcohol is a potential live issue. 
um, and it's not taken into account. And in the end, the judge basically uh, dismisses the concern uh, with mouth alcohol, not because um, it's not a concern, but because they fail to establish, the, the, the defense fails to establish that that is a concern generally, which is a is terrible in my mind because the prosecutor who runs that ran that trial must Hello. know that this is the law and it's also been in BC judicially acknowledged um yeah, it's been a subject of judicial notice it's been a subject of judicial notice that it is uh, the approved screening devices the current lot of them have no capacity to detect the presence of mouth alcohol we and also so, know that, like, the presence of mouth alcohol is is an issue because it goes all the way back to Burnshaw. Well, in all the line of cases, all the line of cases from the Ontario Court of Appeal, um, and here, you know, you've got a prosecutor who's saying, "Well, you've got no evidence that you're supposed to take a reliable test this way." Meanwhile, there are all this myriad of cases, and of course, it you know, judicial notice in British Columbia, but not in Alberta, apparently. Um, and the judge says, no, you haven't established that <clears throat> that these devices have a problem with mouth alcohol. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so those are your, your two issues. Um, and the judge concludes that the mouth alcohol is not a charter violation, but the video is. It, is that right? Yeah. 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 At paragraph 72 <clears throat> to 74, the court basically says, look, like, well, you don't really have an expectation of privacy in a police station. And in Alberta, there's case law that requires the officers to direct people's attention to a, like a notice on the wall, it's like a Regina and Gill or Regina and Singh or something like that. So the police in Alberta are supposed to point you to a thing on the wall that says you're being recorded, Regina and Gill in that case, you're being recorded so that they know that they're being recorded. So they, I guess, don't say anything or do anything stupid or anything that would reveal something private. Um, but the courts that have found that although there's an obligation even at a police station to advise you that you're being recorded, uh, they have recognized that there is some expectation of privacy when it comes to using a washroom. And this is uh, Regina and Marty. It's 2021 ABQB279. Um, and uh, the court there essentially relies on social conventions. Uh, saying that it's clear from all the provided uh, cases that it is objectively reasonable for an individual to have a reduced expectation of privacy while in police custody. What is unclear is the degree to which that expectation of privacy should be reduced. Parading in a squad of male recruits to watch a female detainee use the bathroom would be an obvious breach. Being escorted to a private bathroom by an officer of the same gender who waits outside would be acceptable. These two extremes leave a large gray area in between. So there's some expectation of privacy when you're using. Um, the toilet, and the court finds that video monitoring and displaying somebody's actions on a monitor that could possibly be overheard um, goes beyond what's objectively reasonable. So in that large gray area, unreasonable intrusion into your privacy, recording the washroom at the police station. So, but where do we end up in this case? Well, uh, the court looks at it and... Um, they sort of look at the three things to determine whether or not there is uh, there is a breach. First, they look at how serious it is, um, and the court goes, "Well, you know, there's there's 
you concerns about safety and self-harm and security by like not having people monitored while they're on the toilet. But at the same time, you know, they took her to an empty cell um, and she was escorted and monitored from a distance by a female employee, which was visible on the video. Um, and she was only on the toilet for like two minutes and you only kind of saw part of her butt and her leg. Um, and that might have just been sheer luck, but it was more privacy. Not that she knows it. Not that you don't feel the effect of it having been recorded. A permanent record now in the court, in the evidence yeah. in the file. I mean, it's to me, it's just over the top. And, it's a recording court, a person on the toilet. But the <laughs> impact part too gets me. They're like, well, it was little of her bare body revealed in the recording, and for only a brief time span. Her face cannot be distinguished due to the distance and the angle of the camera. The court appreciates that sensibilities differ from individual to individual, but fortunately, arguably no more private region than a thigh and a side buttock were revealed. You know what, though? If it were a situation of somebody coming before this judge charged with voyeurism for putting a recording device like a... Uh, in a bathroom. Uh, in a bathroom. Yeah, in a <laughs> bathroom and getting that same angle. In a restaurant you were, bathroom, you have a lower expectation of privacy in a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> you'd be you'd be charged. Yeah, if there was if there was a notice that appeared on the wall of the restaurant that said, you know, occupants are under video surveillance and wasn't specific about whether the bathroom was there, about the same angle, you would be charged. And not only would you be charged, Crown would possibly seek a jail sentence. Yeah. But apparently when the police do it, there's no impact on this person. Meanwhile, if you were charged and you were one of the people. You were one of the people that got recorded. You could come to court and present a victim impact statement. What was that guy? That chef, or bartender, or whatever, in in the downtown East Side, yeah, who was doing this? And there were all these women that came and gave victim impact statements about how traumatizing it was to later find out that they were being recorded, even though not a lot of private information or private parts were revealed of all of the women, but they were still all taken seriously. And the court took it as being a significant impact on them psychologically. And yet here, so when the police do it, it's like, that's not much of an impact. It's pretty, it's pretty awful. It's pretty awful. But the other findings on the, on the, I mean, the uh, overall this, on the both, both two issues, uh, it seems like the, uh, the court just completely seems to miss the boat. Um, at uh, paragraph 111, talking about the mouth alcohol issue, uh, the court says the fact that Constable Marshall did not ask about the time of the last drink is now, and this is in quotes, is evidence of a lack of concern regarding the reliability of the ensuring screening test results. That's the point. The police officer is supposed to turn their mind to it. It's in their training. It's in the manual. Next part of the paragraph. Despite his Inconsistent answers about the possibility of a false positive result on an ASD, Constable Marshall's evidence was that he did not have any concerns as to the accuracy of the device. He's been trained. He's supposed to know that it's not accurate if there's been yeah. any recent consumption. It's in the manual. It's the same law going back to the 1980s when the alert device was introduced. Goes on. Importantly, I can't believe this. There's no legislative obligation on the investigating officer to question 
Miss Johnson about her prior alcohol consumption, nor hold off on administering the ASD for 15 minutes to allow for the elimination of mouth alcohol. There never has been legislative authority. It's always been because that's the only way you can take one that's pursuant to Section 8 of the Charter as a sample that's suitable for analysis. Mm-hmm. Not only was it an error, she goes on, the judge goes on to say, I don't know, male or female, doesn't matter, she- court. So not only was it an error to conduct the ASD immediately, given Constable Marshall's knowledge of the belief in the time, it would have been an error to delay administering the test. You don't have to administer the test, delay administering the test. All you have to do is ask the questions about it. This officer didn't even ask the questions about last drink, despite the fact this person was leaving a a casino. Then the court goes on to speculate about the functioning of the device. There was no error code generated by the roadside device upon Miss Johnson providing a breath sample. Well, I cannot imagine that that was the evidence that that came out because there's never an error code in um, in these circumstances when it's contaminated by mouth alcohol. This is an alcohol sensor FST, right? And that yep. says the officer testified that when the ASD registered to fail, he arrested Miss Johnson for impaired driving. This points to the constable marshal having the genuine belief at the time that the ASD was reliable. Oh. He arrested her. It must have been a valid arrest. He must have, yeah. must have believed in the legitimacy of his arrest. Why would he arrest her if he didn't it. think it was, she was yeah. arrestable? The court is satisfied based on his actions on the date in question that Constable Marshall honestly believed that the ASD test could be administered when it was and that the results of the test could be relied upon when considering whether or not he had grounds to make any further evidentiary breath demand. I mean, it's just like... the. <laughs> It's the, 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 the reasoning here is just backward. But this is like the sad state of the law on, on um, ASD testing. That unless the officer has grounds in their mind to believe that the device would produce a, uh, an unreliable result, that it doesn't really matter whether or not the officer, um, whether or not the officer has a, a, an unreliable result. Like if they don't take the correct step, because they didn't believe or understand or know that those steps were supposed to be taken, the law in Canada effectively says that, well, then that's not on them. Well, doesn't the law say that? I mean, I don't, you know, I think this is just a wrong decision. No, 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 it does. Because you and I both recently read a a judgment from uh, Yukon. In oh, which yes. the judge reviewed the law across Canada That's to try true. and answer a question that had never been answered in Yukon about whether or not if an officer doesn't go through all of the the procedures to rule out mouth alcohol before taking the sample, can they rely on it? Do they have to ask about drinking, or can they just can they just go ahead and do it if they have no other reason to believe that mouth alcohol is going to be an issue? But it's and, different here. She's just leaving a casino. Right. Yeah. In that in that Yukon decision, I think it was somebody was pulled over like an hour from town. But it actually didn't matter because the court looked at everything and said it's irrelevant whether or not, you know, they they there are other factors. If the officer isn't aware of the training to do something and they don't do it, that cannot hold against them. The court actually expressed sort of some some displeasure in that case at the state of the law, that it was like an incongruous principle that if an officer didn't know any better, then they could be permitted to rely on a result that their training should have taught them was not reliable. Rewarded for their ignorance? You get to yeah, succeed in court because ignorance. you're you're stupid? Is that? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's effectively, yeah. 
you had to succeed in prosecution because you were so dumb that you you didn't know you were doing something wrong. Yeah, that I mean, may that may be the way it works. I don't know. <laughs> Too yeah, smart, you don't succeed. This is the the sad state of the law that like you are rewarded legally speaking in in um in these cases for not knowing what to do as a police officer, and that uh, I, I just I I find that so shocking and so frustrating. If I were I'd be like, look, like this, this rule is wrong and it shouldn't be this way. And I'm going to write a judgment. I, I invite the crown to appeal me because I want the, the higher court to look at this and go, you're right. This makes no sense. This is stupid. Well, it really makes no sense in this one because the judge is talking about the obligation of a legislative uh, authority. We know it's never been a legislative authority. It was always just reliability of the test for Section 8. And to talk about an error code when there cannot have been evidence of an error code that arises from mouth alcohol because there isn't one. Um, yeah. You know, I, I just, the, the two things together here, particularly when somebody's leaving a casino, um, you know, it's just telling you that you don't have to ask. You can just get an unreliable test. You can, you can, you know, unless you see a, basically a bottle in their hand, uh, police officers in Alberta don't even have to inquire about anything to ensure that the test is reliable. Yeah. All right, Paul. Now that we're all fired up and angry, how about something to calm you down and make you laugh? Sure. I think it's time for... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. And this week I actually, I, I thought of you because I knew you've been craving to discuss this Johnson case. Um, and I thought, well, she had an expectation of privacy when she was partially <laughs> I, naked. I didn't tie these what two together I, that way. What if I found you a man who had no expectation or desire for privacy while behind the wheel of a car? Well, I, uh, I, I know the case. I know what you're about to refer to, so you might as well go. I, you've already, you've, you've, you've spilled the beans for me. I've set it up. All right. So this is, of course, a Florida man uh, who was arrested after he was driving down the highway in Florida, like a, a toll highway, and visited seven toll plazas at 7 a.m. on three different days, naked and showing his junk. And not toll plazas where you just drive through and throw your coins in or, or <laughs> swipe your credit card or something. It was where you had to actually interact with someone. Interact with someone. And uh, I like in the article that I'm reading, which is uh, on like a NBC2, some kind of weird website, uh, it says that troopers used a photo comparison technique to identify him from security footage. Did they identify him while he was naked? Well, yeah, there you go. I mean, he really waived his expectation of privacy, though, didn't he? <laughs> He waved yeah. his expectation of privacy all around. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I, I ridiculous drivers of the week, usually I find over the course of my week somewhere on the internet. Sometimes people send them to me, um, and I've been sending them to you. You find the odd one, but for the most part, I'm the one who's 
usually digging them up. Um, and this week I hadn't got anything that was that interesting. And so I just typed in uh, Florida naked. And that was the first thing that came up. And, uh, and it, of course, it was recent. It just was like two weeks ago. So he's the ridiculous driver of the week. We learned about it this week. I guess the people in Florida knew all about it already. Probably. Mm. I'm sure that man's junk was on every major news station, but with like a blurred out over it. There's always crazy news stories that could be legal news stories, but they're not always related to driving. Thankfully, there's always somebody doing something stupid with yeah. driving. One day we'll have to have a poll. What was our favorite ridiculous driver of the week? I think we did discuss this at one point. And mine still is the guy who was mixing music in his semi with with LPs while driving. <laughs> you know, that's the one that I think is most memorable to me because he had like the full DJ session set up. But I actually, I think back to my favorite, um, which was before we did this as a segment on the podcast. But I think it was on like maybe the second or third episode of the podcast where we talked about the guy who was caught fucking the tailpipe of his car. Yeah, not a driver, but yes, I do remember the story. I just remember, I was still shocked by it. It's something I want to block from my memory. You're happy to think about it. You uh, are a different gender than me. I have different concerns about it than you do. I don't want to visualize it. Thank you very much. That's fair. Well, it's fair, but, you know. That was, that was, I think, among my favorites. Pretty memorable. Um, all right. Well, that's our podcast. Well, if people want to come back for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week, uh, they uh, should do that next week when we have another podcast. Uh, this is always a lot of fun. I'm enjoying it a lot. I'm glad to be back. And let's keep going. All right. So tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Lawn. In the meantime, if you need to reach us, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call 604-685-8889.